0: So how many years were you an executioner in your job?
1: That period lasted for uh, maybe uh, five or six years. That's a really long time. Oh, it was a very long time. It was, I mean, very, very depressing.
0: Chris is a mild-mannered, decent guy who was an executioner in the sense that he fired over 1,500 people. He was working for a financial services firm, and the Internet boom went bust. 9-11 happened. The economy was bad. Business was terrible. And as a result, call centers with hundreds of people were barely getting any calls. And when the company downsized, he had to see that all of these people, hundreds of them, were dismissed. And then, at the end of the process, he was fired.
1: You know, the whole unit I was in at that time, you know, the organization decided that they were going to fold that unit and not be in that business directly.
0: So did you have to fire yourself? Like, was it, was it like, you know, a samurai movie <laughs> where they where they gave you an order saying you will execute all these people and then you will execute yourself?
1: No, it wasn't that way. It was uh, pretty much all of us took a turn. <laughs> so we all, we're all in the long, wrong seat eventually. I mean, I'd say 90% of us anyway.
0: Now, you may notice that in my conversation with Chris, I use the word executioner, but he never does. He is such an old school human resources guy. So old school that decades ago, he was actually part of a group that helped popularize the phrase human resources department, replacing the term personnel department. Which uh, means that he is much too smooth and experienced and truly empathetic to ever use the word executioner or the word fired, for that matter.
1: I would never use it. I think that's something that... But I I think that's an unhelpful and kind of a dated concept. If you've done it skillfully, they're going to feel that there was, you know, there was a parting of the ways, you know, there's an exit of the unit or whatever the factors are. Uh, I know when I received... uh, uh, a package. You know, I, I uh, came through the door and said, hey, you know, I've been exited. I got a package, you know, they're closing down the unit. And I haven't actually thought of myself as being fired for a second.
0: This is a very positive, glass half full kind of man. So it was sort of miserable for him during those five or six years, flying around the country, checking into hotels, and then planning what he was going to say to certain people. Preparing himself to go into these big call centers to arrange for hundreds of people to be fired at one time.
1: Well, it feels it feels bad, obviously, and it's uh, it's a painful thing. Many people had grown up there for years, and uh, you know this was their life as well as their role and their job. And uh, before you get there, they know. I mean, the jungle drums are out there and, uh, you know, you walk into a call center. There isn't a receptionist. There's, You know, you kind of walk down the halls and past the desks and, you know, people will kind of look at you.
0: Did you ever actually hear people say as you walked by, like, here they come, you know? That's
1: happened. Yes. i heard people say, uh, you know, is this... The executioner, it's not, I mean, you know they're wondering, is it going to be me? Is it, uh, you know, how is it going to impact my life?
0: So so just to be clear, so you've personally fired dozens of people and then overseeing the firing of hundreds of people, right? Yes. Okay, can I ask you to just um, fire me right now?
1: Okay, okay.
0: Hi, Ira, how are you? I'm doing okay.
1: Good, good. Ira, this is going to be a difficult conversation. I want to let you know that up front. You know, we've been going through serious changes in the the market environment uh, over the last uh, 12, 18 months. And so the organization, I think, as you know, is making some decisions to uh, downsize. And uh, I have the bad news for you, which is that you're part of that uh, downsizing. So... As Chris did
0: this, from the moment that he said, this is going to be a difficult conversation, I feel like he got the message across, I was going to be fired. And then, um, even though I knew this was made up, my mind went blank. His language was so abstract and businessy that it just let my mind kind of wander and think, oh, I've I've been fired, I've been fired, what am I going to do now? And then uh, the next thing I knew, he was talking about my severance package.
1: And uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the support that we're going to provide for you in terms of salary continuation and, uh, uh, and medical coverage and things like that. Uh, let me just pause for a second.
0: And So when Chris was done firing me, I asked him about how clinical his language had been, if that was a technique of some sort, to lull me into accepting my firing
1: it just comes out that way because you start with the facts. And you know you you also need to be careful about what you say. So you know you don't want to enrage the person on a personal level. So you know you really want to kind of keep it calm and uh, talk much more about the exit their exit package.
0: Now did did you get nervous as you were doing that? Sure. You you sounded a little nervous, and and also I have to say, like uh, I'm sitting here at a mixing console, so I'm I'm controlling the volume of your voice. The volume uh-huh. of your voice cut in half. Like I've I've been pushing up the volume of your voice <laughs> steadily the entire time. It's not a comfortable
1: thing. It's not a comfortable thing,
0: even for you. No, it's never
1: comfortable. Yeah, you know, something in, I, I don't think you 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 can do it a hundred times and it still feels bad. And I think it's because. At the end of the day, people have much less control than organizations do in the world of work. You know, the actual job-finding processes are still pretty, you know, antiquated for individuals, whereas organizations, you know, can have recruiters and search firms and, you know, advertise and et cetera, et cetera. An individual, they're kind of like a little boat in the big sea. And they're going to bob around there and, uh, you know, they're going to have to scratch together a living again.
0: The company always has more power than we do. And if we're lucky, they manage us well, they're fair, they keep us busy enough, but not too busy. But we are not always lucky. Today on our show, we have stories about how our lives get run by these institutions WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International, I'm our glass. Our program today, Human Resources, in three acts. Act one, the rubber room. In that act, hundreds of public school teachers who are not in the classroom, but who get paid full salaries to do nothing. Act two, the plan. The secret cabal who may or may not run real estate markets all over the country. Act three, almost human resources. Human management of animals has gotten to the point where even the federal government has started to build animals retirement homes. No kidding. Stay with us. Act One, Rubber Room. A former school teacher named Jeremy Garrett decided to make a movie about one of the things the school system puts his colleagues through something that seemed like terrible mismanagement to him in the New York City public schools where he worked. Jeremy had heard about teachers who were removed from their classrooms and sent to a place that everybody calls the Rubber Room. Like, for example, this teacher that he interviewed, who did not want his name used, who was having personality conflicts with a principal. And the principal suggested that he could be reassigned elsewhere. It sounded great to the teacher. And then for the next few days, instead of going to school, he went to this room in a Department of Education building.
2: It's kind of embarrassing the first two days... As I'm sitting down there, I was naive enough to say to the secretary, about what time do you think I'll be meeting with somebody? And she's like, well, you're just going to sit there until you do meet with somebody. And then at the end of the second day, I'm like, this is crazy. I mean, I have an after-school regents prep program to help the kids with the, the regents exam. I'm like, this is nuts. I mean, these kids have to take a regents exam, in like a week away... And then eventually the light goes on over your head as you start, you know, like meeting other people that are sitting there too, and you realize, all right, this is going to be a long-term kind of thing.
0: This is the rubber room. Some teachers are put there because they're accused of something, like putting their hands on a kid, where the school would want them out of the classroom while it investigates and determines guilt or innocence. But many of the teachers are just there for things like insubordination, unsatisfactory performance. And some teachers don't know why they're there, And instead of finding them guilty and firing them, or finding them innocent and returning them to the classroom, the New York schools just hold them, sometimes for years, doing nothing. Nothing, all day long, nothing, in these big rooms.
2: The environment has a culture all its own. Uh, And when you're there long enough, like I was there for a year, when you're there long enough, you see the stages of the culture. New people sit there and are very quiet and say nothing to anybody under any circumstances. And then a couple of weeks go by. They realize, okay, uh, I guess I'm going to be here for a while. Uh, I might as well start getting relaxed. A lot of people come in with suit and tie because uh, you know, they figure they're going to meet with somebody immediately and then get back into the classroom because they think this whole thing's a joke. And what am I here for in the first place? So... Once it dawns on them that you're going to be here for a while, then they start to loosen up. They don't dress as nice. They realize, you know, I'm going to be comfortable because I'm going to be sitting down in a room for six hours. Then on stage three, you start opening up. You start talking to people. You start interacting. Uh, What do you like? Oh, I like doing crossword puzzles. You know, you start building bonds with people.
0: This guy spent a full year in the rubber room, and then he was fired without any formal charges. At any given time, there are as many as a dozen or so rubber rooms around the city of New York, in all five boroughs, holding as many as seven or eight hundred teachers. The teachers show up every day, all day, and they're paid their full salaries, meaning taxpayers are putting out tens of millions of dollars for this every year. Well, this teacher's film about the rubber room made us wonder more about what life is like inside the rubber room, and with the filmmakers' permission, we asked the team at Radio Diaries, Joe Richmond, Samara Freemark, and Ana Yancy Diaz-Cortez, to go out and do a radio version of the story. Here it is.
3: My name is Yago Kira. I'm 32 years old. Um, I was an English teacher in the Bronx for three years.
4: My name is Grace Colon. I've been a teacher in New York City for 16 years. I'm starting my second year in the Rubber Room.
5: My name is Jonathan. I was a teacher in the New York City public school system for one month and in the Rubber Room for four months. Yeah. <laughs> I spent much longer in the rubber room than I did in the classroom.
3: I was under a lot of a lot of stress at work. You know, I was three months into teaching, and I rolled into work um, that day. It was two days after my 29th birthday, and I was going from group to group, helping them out if they had answers with the prompts, things like that. And um, I'm sitting down with one particular group, and, like, they're all speaking really loudly, and I... You know, I would not paid attention, and the classroom had turned into a chaos. You know, the next thing I know, I'm screaming, I'm like cursing, I am basically unhinged. And I picked up a chair, and I threw it at a blackboard, and um, I didn't really get a lot of torque on it. I didn't... Uh, really release it like I I wish I could have. And it, you know, bounced off the wall and on the way down, nicked a student. I then left the classroom. You know, I just couldn't believe what I had done. Went and splashed cold water on my neck. I just tried to assess just what I had done, you know. I, I remember going back into the classroom and to them it was... Well, I mean, you know, look at it objectively. To them, it, well, it must have been not fun per se, but hugely entertaining to see an adult, someone in a position of power, completely lose their shit. And then the next day, I'm taken out of the classroom and reassigned.
4: My principal called me into the office uh, just before Christmas 2006. She had a paper, and she told me that I am being reassigned to uh, reassignment center. And I'm asking, what does this mean? What does reassignment center mean? Somebody looked at me and said, well, you're in the rubber room.
5: I said the word in the hallway of my school in a in a conversation with another teacher and unbeknownst to me, there was an open door nearby and a classroom of eighth graders heard me. Uh, I knew that I was going to be in trouble. The principal kind of pulled me aside on my way to my classroom and charged me with verbal abuse of a child. I mean, it's child abuse, verbal abuse. So she literally accused me of abusing a child by accidentally using a single four-letter word, and I had no idea. At that moment, I would never see my students again. I had no idea.
4: When I did go to the so-called reassignment center, you walk into a typical city office, almost like either welfare office, food stamp office, people walking around, trying to look busy, not making eye contact. You start thinking, where are you?
3: And there's about 8 to 10 rooms. In every room, there's about 10 people. And space is at a premium.
4: I mean, you had the black corner, you had the Hispanic corner, you had the the few white people that were scared to death. And so you have to make a quick decision because everybody else is sort of looking you, sizing you up. Oh, where do I go?
5: My first day there... I went in and I reported to the supervisor in charge. Uh, She said, well, go find yourself a chair, but be careful because people are territorial. And in fact, fights have broken out over chairs. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? Fights, people, fights breaking out among teachers over chairs. And I went and I saw the first open seat I saw. I went and I sat down in it and I opened up my book and I, and the person next to me said, "You can't sit there. That's blah 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 seat." And I said, "Well, where's blah blah blah?" He said, "Well, he didn't come in because it's Friday and he wanted a three-day weekend." And I said, "Well, you know, when he comes in, you know, we could talk about it then." So she got up and left the room, and a minute later she came back and she said, "I found you a seat. I got you a seat. Uh, you'll like it better there. I I can see you like to read. It's a quieter room." So I thought, oh, that's you know, a friendly thing to do. And she went and took me to the other room, and she'd asked my name. And so she went in and said, everybody, this is Jonathan. And she went around the room, and she introduced me to everyone in the room, and said, here's your chair. And sure enough, there was an empty chair, and then she left. And I went and I sat down, and the woman a couple of chairs away said, you can't sit there. That's blah, blah, blah seat. And I want to emphasize, I, I was not in a good mood. I, I was not happy to be there. I didn't know what was going on with me. I was, uh, I was feeling hostile. And, um, well, I'm kind of a big guy. And, I'm, you know, I'm, this is a, a rather petite woman, you know, some years older than me. And, and I leaned right over and I got in her face. I said, now you listen to me. I'm going to sit in that chair. And if anybody doesn't like it, anybody's got a problem about it. You send them right to me, and we'll talk about it. And I sat right down, and I opened my book. And she gave me a dirty look and didn't say anything. So I sat in that very same chair every day, and that was was my chair. And sometimes I could get an empty chair and put it in front of me and turn it around and use it as a table. And that was nice.
6: My name is Gail Friedman. I am now in the Rubber Room and
7: I've been in there since February of 2007.
6: The children don't know what happened to me. They might have thought maybe I moved away or I went to another school. You know, you're just not there anymore.
8: You're in this forgotten little place. My name is Pete Sinclair, but that's really not my name. And I've been in the Rubber Room for about a year and a half. It's that feeling of, of lack of momentum, of anything moving. It's like purgatory. And time just goes
0: by
6: and everyone is just sort of playing cards. It's just like you sit and wait. Like like as if you'd be in a waiting room except that you're waiting for months. Sometimes people wait for years. You just wait.
4: When I first come in into the rubber room in the mornings, I look at the papers. Then I look through my bag. I usually stick bills and stuff, my
3: checkbook, you just kind of go there, you sign in, you sit down, you stare at the wall, you get into a conversation with somebody, you make a phone call, you check your stocks if you want.
4: Some people play cards, some people gossip, some people have portable VCRs, they look at movies.
5: And then um, there were little classes that were held. Took Spanish classes from a Spanish teacher. There were drawing classes. There was a book club, very popular, and they would meet twice a week for 90 minutes and you would have 20 people in this little room that housed the refrigerator and the microwave and they'd be talking about the novel or what have you. But, you know, that might be three or four hours a week. Even if you did all the activities, it's just a few hours a week.
3: And there were a lot of people who would just kind of bring in pillows and would sleep all day. No lesson plans, no homework, no papers to grade, no dealing with parents, no dealing with screaming kids. And indeed, there are teachers that have been in the rubber room for years collecting a salary for a job that they're not doing.
5: And for some people, that's not so bad. I mean, if you really hated teaching and you really liked playing cards, the money's the same. So, uh, yeah, the noise, for me, might have been the worst part of actually being there. And the sound of it uh, was, was really the most distinctive thing of it. Yeah. I wanted to get a souvenir. I brought in a, a little uh, digital voice recorder so I just laid the recorder down on the table and you know, I'll play it for you. It's very crowded, the acoustics are terrible, very echoey, and teachers like to talk.
9: I agree. We're off from what society condones as the norm, like an
5: allowed party. Where, you, where you're talking to somebody, and after a while you realize that you're both shouting, and then you realize that everybody in the room is
10: shouting. It's
5: really difficult to sit there and try to read or get anything done when people are yelling or fighting or screaming over, you know, a
0: missing bottle of jelly in the refrigerator.
4: You have people that are in denial, you have people that are angry, you have people that have shut down, you have people that have uh, introverted into not even speaking, they just come in and exist.
5: I mean, there are some really nutty people in there.
4: You don't want to make eye contact. There have been a lot of fights, the dumbest stuff, someone... Went into the refrigerator and stole someone's butter. There have been arguments over paper, over someone stealing someone's pen.
5: Some of the people in the room like light the lights off because it's more restful. Uh, and Maybe they even want to sleep. And the rest of the people want the lights on because they want to read or play cards. So somebody will get up and turn the lights off, and somebody else will get up and turn the lights back on. It's a conflict of wills. There were fights, a couple of fights. I heard them because they'd be going on, say, in the room next door in the hallway, and then everybody would spill out in the hallway to go watch.
4: It's a prison type of culture. If you go out of your comfort zone, then people will mess with you. Let's say if I were to go to the white area and decide I want their chair and stuff, the people there are going to look out for their chairs. And so there will be a confrontation. You want to be very careful not to step on anybody's uh, space because space seems to be the last control. That's the last thing that they have control over.
5: People fight over the few things that there are to fight over, such as territory. And it was this amazing thing because one of the more popular members of the group went back to her school. She got sent back. And there were literally tearful farewells There were were flowers, there was cake. Goodbye, goodbye. And before the end of the day, somebody had claimed her seat. And everybody had kind of moved up in the pecking order, territorially. It's not so much the chair as it is the real estate it sits upon. So what you want is a nice spot. It's nice to sit near a window. It makes a difference whether there's some shrieking banshee four feet away from your ear. It makes a difference uh, whether the light fixture flickers. I mean, you're going to be there for seven hours a day, five days a week. You know, you wouldn't think it would make so much of a difference. But you're there for a long time. So it does.
3: The strangest feeling is getting up in the morning with a purpose, taking a shower, brushing your teeth, having that first cigarette, getting on the train, dealing with all these commuters to show up to work, to do nothing. And I think, I think it's made that way. I think that's kind of the point. They punish you with boredom.
5: It's kind of an indelicate question, ask somebody how long they've been there. It's a little bit like asking somebody what they're in for. It's embarrassing.
3: It's humiliating. After about a week of going there and reading all day, you begin to realize that there is no cavalry there's no one coming in your defense. There's no one beating down the door saying, give us back our teacher. There's no one making phone calls to you know, clear your name. And that's when it hits you. That's when you realize, holy crap, I could be in here indefinitely.
4: When you first start out, you're in denial, And you're sort of frozen. You have no emotion. I think that went on for me for maybe two to three months. And then after six months, at that point, we had our summer vacation. You come back, and then you get angry all over again. Here you are, starting again, yet a new school semester in this limbo.
3: The thing with the Department of Education, it's such a large system. A million kids, a million students. I mean, if you, if you begin to think about it, it's staggering. You know, there's 70,000 teachers, so
5: you know, even if 700 have these Kafka things happening to them, that's still only one in a, one in <laughs> one in a 100. Wait, that is a lot, one percent.
3: Yeah. I feel that the Department of Education, in many ways, is it's hiding a secret the Rubber Room. I I certainly hear the term Rubber Room
5: thrown around. I use the phrase Reassignment Center, Temporary Reassignment Center. My name is Dan Weisberg. I'm the Chief Executive Labor Policy for the New York City Department of Education. I don't doubt that there are teachers in the Reassignment Centers who believe, A, they didn't do anything wrong, or there there are teachers there who Um, think that what they did really doesn't warrant the punishment as they see it of being reassigned. Um, In some cases those are difficult decisions but we are entrusted with the safety of over a million kids including by the way mine. Uh, The benefit of the doubt has to go to the kids. We're not an auto company we're not an accounting firm and we're dealing with something unique and that is the well-being of children.
8: My sense is that there's been a more aggressive policy about trying to bring teachers up on charges. And as a result, the numbers of people going into the rubber room have increased a lot lately. I'm Sam Friedman, and I write the On Education column for the New York Times. And I've been covering education on and off for about 30 years. There are many incompetent and some abusive and exploitative teachers who are totally deserving of having their licenses taken away and who should be you know never allowed to be in the presence of children that said this is still not the humane way to deal with them and it's also in my view not an eff- not been an effective way of separating out who's facing legitimate accusations and who's there because of a grudge with a principal and is otherwise, you know, an entirely capable educator. There isn't a whole lot they can do about it except to have their day in court or more exactly have their date with a hearing officer.
4: I'm starting my second year in the rubber room. I'm waiting to have my hearing.
3: My case was very, very different. In my case, I had a principal who was willing to go to bat for me. After two weeks, I was reinstated and allowed to come back and teach.
5: Well, I fully expect to be fired, and I've got another job. By most measures, it's a better job. I'll make a little more money. I have a little more responsibility. There's more room for advancement. But it's not what I chose. I chose to teach in the public schools. And I don't think I'm going to make the kind of difference in people's lives doing what I'm going to be doing that I could have made teaching.
0: Our story on The Rubber Room was produced by Joe Richmond, Samara Freemark, and Ana Yancy Diaz-Cortez of Radio Diaries. Their website, where you can hear their stories for absolutely free, radiodiaries.org. The movie about Rubber Rooms that inspired us to do this story is at rubberroommovie.com. Coming up, in managing the lives of apes for medical research, we have accidentally given them a taste for one TV show in particular. What that show is, in a minute, from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International. When our program continues, it's "American Life" Amira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show: human resources. Stories of the ways that our lives are controlled by managers, bosses, institutions, central offices, home offices, all far away from us. We've arrived at act two of our show, act two, the plan. American cities have gone through a massive wave of gentrification in the last few decades. But to a lot of people, that process does not represent the natural ebb and flow of the real estate market, but something more sinister, more orchestrated. It's a plot, and they are its targets. One of our producers, John Jeter, headed to the changing neighborhoods of Washington, D.C. to try to get a picture of how people see this particular plot.
11: John Burroughs Elementary is one of those public schools that parents feel lucky to have in their neighborhood. Maria Jones lives right across the street from the school in the northeast corner of Washington, D.C., and her daughter is in kindergarten here.
7: We have great principal, wonderful teachers. Everybody knows one another. The parents work well, an active PTA body, and... We love this school.
11: But a few months ago, Maria and other parents were at the school for career day when they heard the news. The mayor was going to close 23 public schools, including theirs. And what was shocking were the reasons the mayor gave. Falling enrollment and poor performance. Enrollment isn't falling at boroughs, Maria says.
7: Our enrollment has been building. And then the other thing, failing test scores. We are not failing at all. We are 15th in reading out of 81 District of Columbia public elementary schools. Okay? We are in the top 20 percentile in math out of all 81
11: elementary schools. And and, and so the question is, why would they want to close the school, which the neighborhood seems to enjoy, which is sort of an anchor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's an anchor. Isn't it beautiful? Yes, it's a beautiful
7: school from what (laughs) I can see. What the community is saying is that it must be a land grab because if you look all the way down into 20th street and all the way down to eighteenth this is one beautiful long block and then we have this great green field that's just there for kids to play on and everybody knows that the developers have converged upon D.C. and are just going after the property that they want. So this has got to be one of those scenarios. What else can it be? We're not failing. We're a model school.
11: In Washington, D.C., it's not difficult to find people who believe in something called the plan. The plan. It is essentially a conspiracy theory dating back at least 40 years to the 68 riots when whites fled the city in droves, leaving behind a black majority. Some people, white and black, have for years written off the plan as paranoia. But residents like Maria look around and see new homes and new shops and new neighbors, and this seems to be the litmus test for whether your neighborhood is gentrifying, white couples walking their dogs. They never saw that before.
7: It doesn't seem like a conspiracy, some hidden conspiracy. It seems like an out, an out-and-out plan for displacement. Especially when you have other buildings like... um, the Pierce School, Lovejoy, um, and some of the other buildings that have been turned into condos, that have clearly been closed as schools and opened up with the same structure as million-dollar condos that people are living in now.
11: You don't just hear this kind of talk in D.C., in fact, all across the country, if you are black and older than, say, 20, chances are you've heard of some shadowy scheme in your city to move blacks out of certain neighborhoods and whites in.
12: My dad has been telling me this for years. Um, I am 44 years old. I can remember, you know, when I was growing up, my dad would always say, well, you know, Valerie, there's a plan. There's a plan.
11: Valerie Leonard grew up on Chicago's South Side in a neighborhood called Lawndale, where she still lives and fights against gentrification.
12: You know, he was saying this in the 60s and the 70s. You know, this may be a black neighborhood now, but there's a plan on the books that, you know, they're going to displace black people and, you know, push enough people out so that it's only 25% black. And, you know, I said, "Mm -hmm." you know, you wouldn't believe him, you know, because my dad is one of those conspiracy theorists. And, um Lo and behold, you know I'm an adult now, and everything that he said is coming to fruition.
11: Did your father ever have or or share with you any specific sort of details of what he thought was the strategies they would that 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 the city leaders would adopt to take back this land?
12: um I think one of them was planned neglect that they would just let it run down to nothing, Yeah, you know, which was true, and the let it be overcome with crime, and then then once the the community runs down, they'll come back and grab the land at a much cheaper price and rebuild it for their own people.
11: In New Orleans, Edmund Lewis remembers talk of a conspiracy back in the 70s when he was in elementary school, shortly after the city elected its first black mayor.
8: Yeah, there were community activists who were invited into the school. I remember... uh... Some of the some of the Black Panthers in New Orleans visiting the school, and yeah, they talked about how whites uh, definitely wanted the city back. They wanted control. I remember uh, Reverend Avery C. Alexander, one of the uh, one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement in New Orleans, an activist minister who, you know, he came to the school and he said there are some beautiful homes in, in the neighborhood where the school is, and basically. That they want to move white, young white professionals into this neighborhood and move black people out.
11: Marcel Diallo was born in 1972 in the Bay Area and remembers rumors of a white
8: takeover of Oakland. And you know, some of the some of the things that I was hearing as early as like you know the 80s back in the crack era was that you know all the elders in my family would always say, "Oh, you think they built? You think they paving that road for us? You think you think they fixing that park for us?
6: The white people got their eye on this place and they coming back." That was just like urban lore. That was that was the folklore growing up, is that the white people one day were gonna return and try to kick us out.
10: Carol Swartz, take a stand. Stop land.
11: On a bitterly cold Saturday morning in January, about sixty protesters marched to the home of Washington DC City Council member Carol Swartz, who hasn't been helping them slow gentrification in the city. In the crowd I meet Jabari Zakia, who believes has always believed, truth be told, that D.C.'s mayor and elected officials receive their marching orders from congressional and business leaders in the city. I think, I almost really believe, literally, that when these city council people get, get close to be elected, because D.C. is basically a democratic town. If you win the primary, you're going to win, right? So they see who's going to win the primary, and they, they get that little call at night and say, look, uh, we want to see you. And they take you to that little room and sit you and say, look. This is the deal. Over the past decade, cities like D.C., Chicago, Oakland, and New Orleans have embarked on what is essentially a fire sale. Schools, libraries, public housing, all of which have been auctioned off and converted into condos, lofts, charter schools, sushi bars, and sports stadiums. Washington, D.C.'s changing demographics have ushered in the first white majority on the city council since Congress approved Home Rule for Washington more than 30 years ago. But even someone like Jabari, who firmly believes in the plan, doesn't see it as simply a matter of white versus black. To me, the black members aren't any much different than the white members. Okay. So, in fact, many of the white ones seem to be more progressive than the black ones. I mean, because, look, you have, we've never had a white mayor.
9: I think it's it's the, the plan of any of those people who want to make money.
11: This is Marjorie Rode, another protester.
9: Let us move out the people who are not going to give us profit. and, And that begins to break right along racial lines. So, you know, it's, let's, let's, whether the plan is to move black people out, it doesn't matter. That's the net effect.
11: Marjorie is an art professor at the University of the District of Columbia. She's taught there for nearly 30 years and can remember when the enrollment was more than 15,000, triple what it is now. As the enrollment shrinks, the campus shrinks.
9: That is such a mouth-watering piece of land. So it's hard not to believe that behind closed doors, uh, somebody's really looking at that land. My somewhat paranoid theory, perhaps, is that they're letting the buildings deteriorate. And they're not doing much to support its enrollment. We're not up to date in terms of a lot of our technology and so forth. And then they can say, well, see, we really can Yes, exactly. Benign neglect. Yeah, no neglect is benign. It's always (laughs) malignant. And one of the buildings they took was where we had the art department, the music and so forth. Wonderful building wonderful building. They took us out of it supposedly to renovate it. It is now lofts, condos. okay?
11: D.C. residents point to a group of businessmen called the Federal City Council, who've been around since the 50s, and who the current mayor says he consults with frequently. Similar business groups exist in other cities which seems benign if you have a certain frame of mind, and sinister if you think there's a plan. This much is clear. D.C. is much different from just a decade ago, when blacks were 64% of the population. Now they're 57%, a huge drop, and everyone believes it won't be long before the city is no longer majority black. People like Charles Brown, a limo driver here, say they believe it's a plot, and he knows that lots of people would think that's crazy. But at this point, he says the evidence lines up very much in his favor. Just look around. You don't have to. You don't have to uh, believe anything I say. Just look around. That's all you have to do. Just take a look.
5: If you're in Harlem, if you're in Chicago, if you're in New Orleans, if you're in Washington, if you're in L.A., I don't care where you are. The plan has worked.
0: John Jeter, he's the author of the forthcoming book, Flat Broke in the Free Market, about people whose lives are made worse by globalization. 3. Almost Human Resources Well, on this program we've been talking about how humans manage the lives of other humans but of course we manage the lives of other species as well. Charles Siebert is a New York Times magazine writer who is finishing a book right now about a side of this most of us have never heard of and that when you hear about it actually sounds like a joke. He's been writing about retirement homes for chimpanzees. Yes.
6: Chimp retirement homes. He's been to all kinds. We need them because First of all, there are a, over 3,000 chimps in the United States. Now, among those would be uh, pets, entertainers, um, and former research uh, lab chimpanzees. We have actually a surplus of research lab chimps in the United States, and the reason for that is in when the AIDS when AIDS was uh, you know first the first big outbreak, it was sort of logically assumed that chimps would offer us a possible cure because they share so much of our DNA. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be bogus. Um, Chimps can't get human AIDS. So anyway, we ended up with uh, all these excess-breeded chimps that could not be used uh, for AIDS research and for no other research. Um, And so there was this surplus. And the government, this was uh, near the end of Clinton's administration, was actually faced with this sort of, I guess, moral-ethical dilemma. What do you do with all these... These near humans, uh, we can't just uh, euthanize them. And so uh, one of the last acts of the Clinton administration was the Chimp Act, and they actually came up with the idea to build a government-funded retirement home outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. I went to this place. When I first saw it, I thought, this is sort of the Jurassic Park of of, uh, chimp retirement. This is the pinnacle of retirement homes for chimps.
0: Okay, more on that place. It's got Chimp Haven in just a minute. Charles Siebert says that it's not just research chimps who are getting this treatment. At this point, we know so much more than we used to about how similar chimps' brains are to ours, what they feel and what they know, and how much like us they really are, that they have become an animal that we usually do not ever euthanize, which, when you think about how nearly every other animal of the animal kingdom that we have contact with, we feel utterly free to kill at whim, en masse. It's very unusual. But then, of course, we get into this problem. If we're not going to kill the chimps after they cease to be useful to us... Where should we keep them? Under what conditions? Consider the problem of chimpanzees who work in the entertainment business, who perform in the circus or appear on TV commercials or in movies. Here's something that most of us do not know about chimp
6: entertainers. You know, these chimps have about a four to five year period of viability as, as actors, and then they just get too strong, too willful, uh, too out of control. And is that because like four or five is when they hit adolescence
0: or something? Like that's when they become adult, and before that, they're just
6: little kids, basically? Precisely. I mean, a chimpanzee, a full grown uh, adult chimpanzee, is five times as strong as, 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 a, as a human man. And especially male chimps are, you know, very, very volatile and competitive and aggressive. You know, So for that one or two yucks that we get on television, they then spend another 40 to 50 years locked up somewhere because they're, they're no longer usable. So these are chimps who basically have been working in, in the
0: human working world. And and when they retire, I know, I know there's a discussion about how much we should try to, to re-chimp them. <laughs> yes. And can you just talk about the range of... Solutions that people have come up with to that problem, the different ways people think about that, the different
6: ways these different
0: retirement homes are are, are set up like what what 's the range of things that you 've seen
6: i mean these are chimps that the the, the official word uses they 've been enculturated. i mean a lot of them have been eating off of you know caterers tables been only around humans and um, and they like us i mean they're they 're very social animals and if and, and if if especially if we 're imprinted on them very early they find form very tight bonds. Yeah. So so the gradations would be, I guess the one extreme would be sort of Cheetah's life. Um, you know, that would seem sort of like the human paradigm, of, you know, a retirement home in Palm Springs riding around in golf carts. Wait, and wait Steve, then you mean and you mean Cheetah from the Tarzan films? Yes. Who's seventy-five now, although there's some dispute about whether he is actually that old. He's at a retirement home in Palm Springs. He was walking around the house, we we sat out back by the swimming pool at a, you know, picnic table, he was eating Doritos um, and drinking um, diet iced tea. He's a diabetic. Um, he, you know, goes into the living room, sits at the piano, bangs on the keys. There's a selection of his movies on the living room coffee table. And he has been given to watching, <laughs> you know, his old movies on TV. He recognizes uh, scenes. He gets up and he claps. He, he, he remembers He's basically living like the aging Bob Hope. <laughs> exactly. And um, there's the one extreme, the human the humanoid version of chimp retirement. The opposite extreme would be uh, the Center for Great Apes in Florida uh, where all the retired ape actors are or uh, ape entertainers uh, circus, TV uh, movies and some pets. Uh, you have Basically caged forests. you have these geodesic dome-like structures, very tall and elaborate and spacious, where the chimps are nearly swinging through the trees. The whole ethos of that place, I suppose, would be that they're trying to get them as close back to a state of wild uh, chimpdom as is possible.
0: Okay, so you have the caged forest like that on the one hand and the nearly Bob Hope-style retirement at the other extreme. And then there's this third approach to chimp retirement. The approach that they take at the multimillion-dollar facility the government built for research chimps mostly outside of Shreveport, Louisiana, Chimp Haven. There, chimps live a hybrid sort of retirement,
6: part chimp, part human. It has bedrooms with, like, swinging cots and patios, and and they have in their rooms, like, television, VCR, CDs, and access through these little walkways to um, little moated forests. It's the most... Um, a strange blend of the urban and the wild. And, you know, you asked earlier about, you know, gradations of, of repatriation of chimps. Some of these chimps were born in captivity. Some were taken from the wild. And at Chimp Haven, what they tried to do is get the remaining wild ones together with the, the totally captive-born ones so that the wild ones can teach the captive ones how to be chimps again. Some of the captive ones don't even know what a tree is. Some of the research ones had not even been around ground. They'd been in cement, cement cells all their lives, getting shots of different diseases. So they get released, and, they, and, and there's this one video I saw of a chimp who'd never been on the earth before, and he wouldn't get out of his crate. He was touching down on the earth as though it were the moon. It was the most bizarre thing to see.
0: So what kind of success do they end up having in getting those chimps to, to do those things, to climb trees and, and, and to acclimate to those chimp-like behaviors?
6: Tremendous success, actually. Over time, these chimps do very well. You know, have these days oddly bifurcated by chimp activities and human activities. They, and, and they live out a life of, of that kind of um, to and fro between the two. Um, like like, like so going from what sort of thing to what sort of thing? Well, I mean, you know, they have access to their little pie-shaped five-acre wed- wedges of forest, so they're out there swinging in the trees and socializing with one another and even doing a little crude form of food gathering.
0: You, you mean the, the food gathering, you mean like, like the staff hides food out in the, in the middle of the well, fake they, forest? Well, they,
6: they try to grow certain things in the forest that's conducive to, you know, things chimps would, you know, fruits and berries, that kind of thing but not really enough to sustain them. So they come back in for dinner, you know, and meals. I mean, they come for their three squares, which they are have been used to getting. So, you know, that to me is a a, yeah. a two-tiered kind of a day, you know, where uh, you're playing chimp in the in the jungle, but you're coming back for dinner and watching some television. And and these chimps are all enculturated. They, they, they've been around medical labs. They've been around uh, doctors and, and researchers in white coats. So guess what their favorite television show is? General Hospital. So yes, they have access to the woods where they can go be chimps, but they like coming back to their room and watching television and being around people. So they're having this balance. And and at one point, you know, I said, so in a way what you're saying to me is it would be, it would be just as cruel to now fully exert them from human contact given their history. And they said, yeah, I mean, they still need access to what they knew as they were reared
0: when you describe it this way, it sounds actually kind of like a nice, a nice life. You know, they, they, they get to do some chimp things. They get to do some human things. Like, is that okay? Or do you, or do you feel like somehow we've denatured
6: them or there's something wrong with this? Well, I've come to feel that it's the best we can do for them, given the circumstances, but in the best of worlds, it should have never happened that they just shouldn't be kidnapped from their lives. Um, for these purposes and you know they live longer lives in captivity but you know they're they're wild animals and they have their life and i've in the course of doing this book and other articles i've been in the wild and had a chance to see them in the wild yeah and when
0: you see that what do you say
6: i don't know you feel a very deep stirring um i was running for hours through the woods and just hearing rampant chimp screams, pods moving, they move with unbelievable felicity through the jungle really fast and so we, you know, I began to despair of ever catching up to them and then suddenly my guide just put this sort of, you know, quiet gesture in front of his mouth and pointed up and there was a mother and a baby, you know, about 50 feet up, high in a tree and the baby staring down at me and I, I don't know it just, it just, I got chills, it just took my breath away and I thought about it a lot afterwards, what that kind of meant and it It really was um, very moving.
0: Charles Siebert, the book he's writing about the weeks that he moved into a chimp retirement community, is called the Wachula Woods Accord.
10: I'm chained to the wall. I have nothing at all the sunset thinking of better things to do like a monkey in a snook. the days go so slow i don't have no friends except all these people who want me to do tricks for them like a monkey I yeah. Like a monkey in a cell
0: You come to look at me well, Our program was produced today by our senior producer Julie Snyder and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, John Jeter, Sarah Kanig, Lisa Pollock, Robin and Alyssa Shipp and Nancy Updike. Adrian Mathowitz runs our website. Our production manager, Seth Lind. Production help today from Emily Youssef and Andy Dixon. Musical help from Jessica Hopper. Thanks today to Jeremy Garrett and Justin Sagnor of Five Boroughs Productions. Thanks to George Saunders and Sean McDonald and Anahi Alani. To Zane Elamin and Parisa Narusi and Professor Eddie Cloud Jr. to Empower DC. to help us with our story about the plan. Their website, EmpowerDC.org. Our website, where tickets have just gone on sale for our next live show. This is going to be broadcast from a stage in New York to movie theaters all over the country. So you can see it in your town. That is going to happen on April 23rd. Tickets just went on sale. Go to our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, to get your tickets. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who, I've never understood this, he calls me into the office every single episode of the show that we do, and he always begins the same way.
1: right, this is uh, going to be a difficult conversation. I want to
0: let you know that up front. I, I I don't know what he's driving at. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with some more stories of This American Life. We
10: are the village green, Preservation society. God save the whole duck, the and variety. We are the desperate and appreciation society. God save strawberry jam and all the different varieties. Preserving the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. What more can we do? We are the Draft Beer Preservation Society. God save Mrs. Fox and good old mother writing yeah, the customer
7: appreciation for the other P R I Public Radio International.